very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, hundreds and hundreds of hours of important information, you know what to do by now. Just go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. And don't forget to visit SunnyTazRadio.com for other life-changing interviews as well. It's your life. Take control. Go to SunnyTazRadio.com. And tonight, a very popular guest returns, Dr. Carmen Bolter, with an amazing new discovery in Egypt, the Hawara Complex, Egypt's underground labyrinth. Dr. Carmen Bolter is a retired professor at the University of Calgary in Canada. She taught in the Graduate Division of Education Research in the Faculty of Education. Dr. Bolter is the creator of the Pyramid Code series and author of Angels and Archetypes, an evolutionary map of feminine consciousness. She has done extensive research in the archives of the Egyptian Museum, gaining official access to the original field notes of excavations done around the pyramids in the early 1900s, and has visited Egypt almost 30 times. And directly from Victoria, British Columbia, Canada, I would like to welcome our friend, Dr. Carmen Bolter. Hello, Carmen, and welcome back. Thanks. Hi, Mel. Thanks for having me. And by the way, I forgot to give your website, which I usually do at the beginning of the interview, pyramidcode.com, and correct me if I'm wrong, interactive hyphen you.com. Thank you. Yes. Sure. Well, you uh, approached me a few weeks ago and I did some research about your new findings. Very exciting stuff. Why didn't you tell us what this exciting new discovery is? Well, um, there has been work done on this site at Hawara. There's a pyramid there. And most of the research stopped in 2008. And then, of course, there was the revolution and all those sorts of things. But the equipment that people were using before uh, to try to ascertain if there were anomalies in front of the pyramid was a ground-penetrating radar that was done by laying wire down on the sand and sending impulses of electricity to see if they could detect if there were cavities down there. The limitation of that technology is that it went five, eight, and 12 meters deep. And so, and the people drove to the site. And so because there's new technology and new technology is more powerful than old technology, 
Uh, and because I've been looking for this site for 25 years, a site that meets these characteristic features, uh, in various places in Egypt, I led, I led an expedition in 2012 and didn't turn out to be the place. I was in and out of the holes at the Giza Plateau for five years. No, that wasn't the place. So I strongly suspected that this was, and I was working with Klaus Donna, who studies out-of-place artifacts, but who's also had a lot of success with a company called Geoscans with a whole new kind of uh, GPR, but high-definition, satellite-based, state-of-the-art um, ground-penetrating radar that has the capacity to go six kilometers into the Earth. And once you go through, you can see through layers. So if you hit something, you can also see what's below it and below that and below that. So this technology has recently been developed and it's only in the last little while that there's a lot of verification coming from scans that they did to find the entrance to the Bosnian pyramids. They found, they knew there was a find in Australia that had Egyptian artifacts and they used the technology to find the entrance and that ended up being verified and true. So uh, Klaus has engaged in scanning a lot of different places on the planet because because it's satellite-based, you don't have to go to the site. So I ended up doing needle in a haystack to find the satellite coordinates uh, by using old maps, going into Google Earth, and just basically searching in the area. And I found it. So about five minutes later, Klaus calls me from Vienna, and I said, I think I found something. He says, send me the, the Google Earth uh, KMZ file. And two days later, he's like, uh, this is amazing. And so it turns out <clears throat> that, the, that the, the, the way the scanning technology works is there is software that has a different signature for each type of element. So you do a separate scan for pottery, a scan for precious metals, precious jewels, water, uh, cavities themselves, like the shape of the cavities and bone. And so... Um, we did these scans and it turns out that at very deep levels, so at uh, more than 18 meters deep uh, and, and more than 55 meters deep, there are two separate complexes that don't connect in any way. And in Egyptology, so in archaeology, older is deeper. And so what, there's already been an excavation for the Roman level, which is the top, for the Ptolemaic layer, which is next down. And then it stopped. And so the ground penetrating radar that was done in 2008 basically shows blobs, blobs of different colors, but it's not very definitive. But also that's not where this complex is. So the upper le level we're calling blue and the lower level we're calling red. Uh, Herodotus in 550 BC was talking about this complex that he was able to go into the blue level, but not to the red, but he had heard about it and people were talking about it. And then Pliny and Strombo and a lot of different people that were at least 600 years apart, so they weren't talking to each other, mentioned this place and they called it the labyrinth. But it doesn't seem to me that anybody's been down there because it's just so deep. And so on the blue level and the, and the red level on one side of the canal, there are 82 chambers and it actually covers an area of 81 football fields which is 107 acres wow. and then at that depth six of the chambers are bigger than olympic-sized swimming pools 
all of the, la- the level, the, all of the chambers to the right-hand side of the canal are bigger than the average size house, except one, which is bigger than the average size apartment. There are 1.4 kilometers of passageways connecting these, but they don't connect up and down. So this is phenomenal. And for those listening, you can go to our website too, where Dr. Bolter has provided some images to go with her presentation so you can follow along if you're on your computer. But I have to ask you this, Carmen, when you say you have been looking for this place for over 25 years, how did you know of its existence and where to look there? Did you have a past life memory about it? Oh, absolutely. Yes. And uh, in 1996, I was at the Star Vision Conference in Santa Fe and a woman named Chelsea Floor uh, showed this chart and it was a picture and she said it was the Great Pyramid. And there was a story in an ancient text that she actually had a photocopy of uh, and it didn't have any title on the book. And uh, this, this, I just went absolutely crazy when I saw this. And so the, the, the narrative in it was that two people uh, had read a prophecy that said two thirds of the way up the Great Pyramid, there's a way to move a stone. And it was something like abarakadabra, like baraka, but the, you know, that abracadabra sure. thing moves. Yep. And this, apparently this, this is the story. The stone slid away and these two gentlemen went inside and they were describing how musty and dank and slippery and yucky it sounded. And they went down, 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 down. And they realized they had to at least be back down to the level of the, 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 earth level and then they kept going down 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 it was dank and horrible and dark and slippery and scary and sounded terrible and they were getting exhausted and they didn't really know where they were going but once they were committed they kept going and then they came to this opening and all of a sudden everything was perfectly clean clear huge huge chambers and as they approached the lights went on and they found all these technological devices that looked like they were part of a machine, almost like, you know, computer chips, but big. And there were portholes and they got the sense that somebody was watching them. When they they say the lights went on, literally or figuratively? Well, this is a technology that seems to be activated by uh, an interface with the human body. It's a, a technology that we don't know about. And... And and I've since heard of people, you know, telling me their their visions when they've come to Egypt, and I've not disclosed this, and they say similar things, where they're etherically flying through the space, it lights up as they arrive, and they're called light keys. And anyway, so they went from one place to another within, the, and it kept opening up and opening up into bigger and bigger and bigger chambers. And I went really crazy over this thing and she i went up to her at the end to chelsea floor at the end of her presentation and she says oh you want that you want it you can have the copy and i i just started reading it and all the way to the airport and all the way home in the airport i didn't put the thing down since i until i finished it i was absolutely fascinated with it and and i'll just tell you that um my cat had the strangest reaction to it um you know she kept on wanting to sit on top of the of the of the manuscript and I was like, what are you doing? Like, she was like crawling on me and pushing, pushing the, 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 the paper into me. And then, and, and this, I'm not, okay, sounds strange, but she leaned forward, lined her chakras up and put her, her little third eye against my third eye. And I started to hear a voice in my head and she said, this is true. You were there. 
And so was I. I'm like, are you talking to me? And she actually talked to me three times um, in, in that incarnation. And she's passed now. But what she told me another time was that she was a reincarnate of my temple cat when I was in Egypt. And the first day I met my show horse, I was on the uh, national show circuit for dressage. And I met this horse that wasn't for sale. He ended up being provincial grand champion. And the day that I met him, she came running across the living room, knocked me back into my chair as I was folding my, closing my book and getting ready to go to bed. And she said, that horse and me were your temple cats in Egypt. You must have that horse. And the lady goes, he's not for sale. And she called me back and said, okay, I'll sell him to you. <laughs> and why, the first, why do you think she, have a, he had a change, she had a change of heart? Because she was a par excellence trainer. She was on the Class B show circuit until the end of summer, and she wanted to complete that. But what she got a kick out of doing is pushing an animal to their height. And she had achieved that with him. He won the provincial grand championship, and she brought him to me. And she wanted somebody who was going to keep the training up, not show him as much as she had been showing him, because that was you know stressful for him. And he needed to go somewhere. And she ended up training the horse that was, was for sale. And then we ended up in a show together. And she won by one point or something. <laughs> but that was all right. And he got so scared when because he, he hadn't performed in so long. But anyway, so um, the, I was living in the city. And then we built a house in the country. And the first time they were together, I went and sat outside and watched. And uh, Kissy, the cat, was Calico. And Boo, that was my nickname for him, um, was bay with a white star and one white foot. So they had the same coloring. And so there, so we brought, took the horse from the stable and brought them out to the farm and built ring, riding rings and stuff like that. So anyway, every day, and that started right away, Kissy would sit on the post and Boo would be right there and all the horses would be like far away. If Kissy would move, Boo would move. If Boo would move, Kissy would move. And they were always together. So you think they connected, reconnected, if you will. Yeah, I do. And that makes sense to me. It just does. And um, I don't think I would be doing any of this research if I wasn't being dragged around by my past life memories. And so after this with Chelsea Floor, I ended up in a position uh, with friends that knew people on the plateau. And my friend had a shop inside before they put the big wall up inside the gate and with permission, they arranged for me to go on the plateau at sunset. And I was always with someone who was, you know, helping me make sure it's all okay. And um, I was in and out of holes on that Giza plateau for five years. I lived over there for two and a half of them. Of them. And then, you know, every time I was there, but not living there, I, I still went and did this. Did you and feel at home there whenever the first time you went there, I believe, was 1977. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yep, that's right. Did you feel at home that first time? Oh, yeah. I didn't want to leave. I wanted to be there forever. And then I just became obsessed with reading everything in sight and, and all that and trying to figure this out. Now, I found old pictures. And there's if you if you imagine you're inside the Sphinx's body to the left the, below, um, I found a picture that was taken in 1910, I think. I don't even know if they had pictures then, but it seems to me that that's what the picture said. And it was the tops of the pillars of the Temple of Isis. And then Zahi came along, Zahi Hawass, and cemented over the whole thing. And so I also know that a lot of those holes um, were blocked, like tunnels. The tunnel system was blocked. 
but part of the memory is that as the planet would rotate, there were chambers underground at the high-level high initiates. There would be one initiate doing an out-of-body experience, star, star knowledge, and four that would be there protecting and helping the person do the work because they were actually going to leave their body. And so my memory is that there was some kind of blue lotus elixir that they inhaled, and then they went into a trance state. But the place that they did it in the underground passageways was, and this passage went straight up onto the surface of the Giza Plateau, but the star that they were going to travel to would be directly overhead. So they knew with the rotation of the earth exactly when that would happen, exactly which high-level initiate would go to what star. And so it literally, as they left their body, their body would collapse, the, the assistant initiates would catch them, and they'd you know, massage them to make sure that person was okay. They would leave and go and get the star knowledge from off-planet. But the trick, that, that was the easy part, the trick was how to return and how to return fully. And so the initiates, the assistant initiates were on duty while the person was having this experience. As they came back, they made sure the person was in, they made sure they were fine. And then the high level initiate doing the star travel would go into isolation for 36 hours. And it was about remembering. And all of it was about visiting the other side is to practice because they knew that they weren't going to die. They were going to drop their earthly garment vehicle. And they were really star people having an earth experience. And another piece of evidence that goes with that is the staff always has a bird head, the long staffs that you see with the seated figures mm -hmm. and it's forked at the bottom and it never touches the ground. So and it's a balance of the body. A bird can fly in the sky and walk on the earth. Uh, we're living in a world of duality and we're not really here. It doesn't touch. So if you see artists' renditions and they don't, their eyes aren't trained and they don't know that, they'll paint something and they'll, they'll have the staff touching because they don't understand what they're doing, what they're looking at. Anyway, so they would bring the star knowledge back. They would anchor it into their body and then they would carry on. And next time it would be someone else, a different chamber, a different star, for supporting um, initiates. So this was one of the things that I ascertained was happening on the Giza Plateau. This book that Chelsea Floor gave me a photocopy of said you go two-thirds of the way up the east side of the Great Pyramid and that's where the stone is. Well, that's all you have to do to camouflage it is actually have it be a different pyramid. So then in February 2012, um, someone sent me a photograph of something that looked quite large, trapezoidal shape, um, with a circle in the center, an X in the middle, and something that actually looked like a pyramid if you zoomed in. And the walls looked like they were 30 feet thick. So there was something about the trapezoid shape, the thickness of the walls. You couldn't tell how high they were. And I started consulting with... Um, a very dear friend of mine who's the most powerful psychic I've ever known, actually. And she's been tracking me on my trips to Egypt since 1996. And I would come back and I would say to her, so how'd we do? And she would, it would be like she'd phoned everybody that had had any contact with me. She always knew exactly what had happened, exactly, you know, where we had struggles and what discovery. She always knew everything before I told her anything. So I really trust her. 
And when we started processing about this place, she said there's very, very deep chambers. And it's all and I knew this already too. And that's the thing. If I don't say so first, then I already know it. And then somebody's saying what I think, it's kind of like a bit of a confirmation. It's certainly not a scientific research study. Like but synchronicity. It feels good. And so she's been she had been processing on a very deep level about a time frame of four hundred and fifty thousand years ago. Well, we know what that resonates with, Sitchin and all of that. However, I've always I've come to think that Sitchin wasn't verifiable. And, um, you know, he made some mistakes and Mike Heisner's, um, site is sitchinisrong.com and he's got a PhD in ancient languages. So we know that Sitchin was onto something and that some of it was right. And some of it perhaps wasn't, but which parts, which, right. But most people just take Sitchin whole and repeat it anyway. So 450,000 years ago. Okay. And so, so what is it? And if we were to have come from off planet, where would we put the stuff? How would we decompress coming from a different energetic matrix density? Um, perhaps that would have been a repository for when we first got here, speculation. And even if we go and dig, we may not know what, what it's all about. But the other level, I started to think, okay, because another, when my first past life reading, not um, uh, regression, hypnotic regression, but somebody who can tune into past lives, and this is all the way back to 73, he told me that I had been on an evacuation committee in Atlantis when we had prior knowledge that there was going to be a calamity. And the, the, we were getting together to say, okay, what are we going to do with the stuff, the technology, and how are we going to protect the people? And my understanding is that we had a 50-year warning. Okay, so what are we going to do? 50 years. 50 years. So I've come to now understand from research ancient texts that there were actually atlantis went on for long enough to actually have three calamities and probably several processional cycles where they went from golden to iron and all the way back around i was going to ask you more than one procession obviously more than one procession so i think the first disaster caught everybody by surprise the second the texts say was 17,500 bc and the third which is documented on the calendar of catastrophes on the ceiling of the Temple of Dendera, both in the linear and the round zodiac, pinpoints the third disaster to 13,660 years ago. And so, okay, I'm, I'm not sure that I could ascertain if this evacuation committee was for the second or the third disaster. If this site was known, if it was already a repository for a civilization, stands to reason to me thinking about it that perhaps the second layer which is a full 20 meters above the bottom layer the red layer um could have also been a repository and one of the reasons i say this and of course i'm just speculating i'm not trying to say it is but certainly you can't talk about a place like this without somebody saying what is it right what do you think it could be now these chambers don't connect to each other. And they're about the size of you. If you look on Google earth beside them, they look like the size of a farmer's field. I mean, this is like burying a whole lot of airports. Like what do you need that for? And why would the a, chambers a warehouse warehouses for what, for stuff, for energy, for decompression. Uh, and let's take it a step further. Six of the chambers have gold. 
still have gold? They still? Yes. For how long, though? Well, I mean, who's going to go get it? (laughs) Right. The thing is, we've applied for permits, and then there's all kinds of funny business that goes on with that. And uh, I ended up blowing the whistle on this because I hadn't digitized a scan because I was very protective of my intellectual property, having had the pyramid code go all over YouTube with 4.25 million hits, and I've taken it off 424 YouTube channels in the last 10 days with all these people calling it something else and putting their own brand on it, making it look like it's theirs. Yeah. Anyway, so, um, and also my footage, the videographer copied the footage of Hakeem and offered it to someone who's interested in Hakeem and said she had the permission to give him permission, which of course isn't true. So this is like the third time where I've got sensitive intellectual property and most people don't have original material. And here came my team going to Graham Hancock and telling him it was their scan, putting a copyright on my PowerPoint, telling everybody they made the discovery. And I just went, okay. Klaus Donna said, you must go public. And that's when I reached out. But (laughs) two phone calls and two emails brought me 22 interviews. (laughs) You can believe it. Well, congratulations. You're number 21, 20 or 21. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Anyway, so the point of the matter is, is that now it's date and time stamped. Um, you know, it's it, the, those pic- pictures I sent you um, are clearly mine with the copyright, respecting Klaus Donna and GeoScans on the 3D animation. Uh, and because of the success he's having, verifying what he's finding, including finding the entrance to the Bos- Bosnian pyramids, and and this finding they found diamonds in Brunei, gold in Bolivia, you know, and this is like governments that are looking for mining and they can do oil and gas, but the company chooses not to take those, those jobs because they know it's not good for the planet and for humanity. And so it really is a viable, powerful state of the art technology. Now a syndrome that's been going on is people who hear about it go, well, I've never heard of that. So it can't be true. She's making it up including that team, um, well, prove to me that that technology is it, you know, but that's not what, what we can use is something like this for a hypothesis. You can use a dream or a past life memory as a hypothesis, right? You, you, it's your best guess at what could happen. Then you need to go into the field and verify, but we need permits for that. And so the idea was we could drill boreholes that were like about three inches around pinpointing the spot and there's actually a device that's even a nudger that's even more uh, specific for on site to know exactly where to drill down and send a camera with uh, an led light and do uh, a 3d mapping of the inside of these chambers and then come up and see what's down there and then decide how to excavate were we to get the permits now you certainly couldn't put a bulldozer there and if you were doing the excavation with little buckets, leather buckets of sand and 100 people, you'd be there for 20 years. But wait, let me ask you, of course, I'm not an Egyptologist, but I have to ask you, if we have found that these are there using, you know, uh, technology to allow us to determine that it's there, don't you think that the entrance will be somewhere else and we may not have to dig? Oh, uh, well... That we have not located an entrance, mm. which is why I think it's a repository. And the the chambers, like in the Valley of the Kings, if you've got different levels, they connect like snakes and ladders. And the, the chambers, like in a temple, 
you find the entrance and you go to the next hypostyle hall all the way to the Holy of Holies. That's a temple. So if you I've studied this for, you know, been staring at the, the scans for a long time, and they don't appear to have any resemblance to a temple, to a tomb, to even passageways. It really seems to be a repository. So no, no artifacts from people, just like Gobekli Tepe? No pottery. Hmm. Bone? Yes. Um, jewels? No. But gold. And these are big chambers. Now, is, are, is it full of gold artifacts, or are the walls gold embossed? Whatever. Now, there is one copper engraving that was done... Um, by Kitcher in 1671 that to me looks like a lot of code. It's square. The center of it looks like a pyramid, a labyrinth, and also could function as the hemispheres of the brain, all in one metaphor. And then it's got these squares, and one of them looks like feminine biology, and the other one looks like masculine biology, and there's one that looks like astrology and astronomy and timekeeping. And then all the way around the outside, you probably have this image, it's gray and white, um, it's like archetypes walking along each side. So to me, this is a, a, a digital code of biology, cosmology, and metaphors for how the pyramid is replicating the qualities um, of the human body, um, the earth itself, the solar system, the galaxy, and the universe. There's something about microcosm, macrocosm, about what's represented in the pyramid structures of functional straight-sided pyramids, as you know from the pyramid code, that is uh, a resonance of, of some description. And so, again, if it was you and me on the committee, the evacuation committee and, you know, 10 other people, what are we going to leave? How are we going to preserve the stuff? So if we were leaving symbols to trigger ourselves, when the world was so dense and dark, what would we leave? How would we represent symbolically something that would trigger the psyche and give us information and code? So this is a replica of what's a copper engraving. Now, we don't know if, if the red level has ever been approached. It's very, very deep. And so one of the things that I've been thinking is based on what's happened uh, at the Queen of Sheba dig in Yemen, where all the Sabian symbols are found. I did um, graduate level archaeological um, research, and I was on the international speaker circuit at the University of Calgary in 2000, 2001. And Dr. Bill Glantzman had, was a principal archaeologist for this Queen of Sheba dig, and he invited me to be a candidate for the ex- expedition. And so I was able to pour over the pictures and talk to him at length and, and look at all their finds over um, multiple seasons of digging. And they would dig for two months and go back to Calgary for 10 months. And, um, and so in Yemen, because it's sand, they would approach the temple and it would be full of sand. So they got the sand vacuuming equipment, which is similar to how they built the islands in Dubai by dredging down having the equipment on a barge, putting it down into the, into the, underneath the, the water to where there's sand, dredging up a bunch of sand, taking the barge to where they wanted to build the islands and redepositing the sand in, in a new place. And they literally built a number of different islands. So this is the equipment that 
could conceivably be used. And so what happened at the Queen of Sheba dig is they would vacuum a section of the temple, go in with their little paintbrushes, brush everything off, and um, take pictures. And that was would take them two months. And then they'd leave and come back, and the, the whole temple was full again. So then they'd vacuum out another section and go in with their paintbrushes and take pictures and so on. And so eventually they had the photographs of everything that was underground, and the temple never stayed um, evacuated. And so same thing with the Sphinx, it it, it would fill in and then they'd empty it again. And same sand dunes going across a road, which you see in the pyramid code, and they'd come and they'd move the sand. So I think it could be a straightforward dig if we were to get the permits. Um, But, you know, nothing's easy in Egypt. Apparently this place is exempt, that there's um, a hold on issuing any new permits and they say in upper Egypt, but they stated that it's from Giza to Abu Simbel, which is about covers the whole nine yards. And so I still don't know if we're going to get the permits, but because of the reliability and validity of the scanning technology, I think we can rest within the idea that something is down there. Something's very deep and deep is very old. I'm looking at the images that you provided. When you see a football field, that is huge. Multiply that by 81. That's 107 acres. That's just mind-boggling to know that they had that there. Now, also, the ground-penetrating radar system that's being used, if there are multiple levels going up and down, can you actually perceive the ones that are lower, or does it just detect the first layer? No, that's see, that's what all the other GPR was able to do. But we know we're getting more powerful cameras right? Higher megapixel cameras, uh, higher resolution satellite scans, and the technology that goes with the software. So the software is what is proprietary and particularly interesting here because they're doing the live satellite feed. But, you know, so is Google Earth and you just look on the surface. So this particular technology works with longitudinal waves and light signatures, and so it is able, powerful enough to look through the level, which is why we know that the other one's down there and exceedingly deep. Now, some people say, well, it was above the earth and the, and the sand came in. I don't think so. Not that deep. Really. It, it's far too deep. Like, we're talking uh, 120 feet deep. That's deep. Yeah. Let me bring Sahih Hawaz here for just a moment. You mentioned he cemented all. Why is it that when I hear his name, instead of being synonymous with their their ex, because he's no longer part of it, I believe, person behind the Bureau of Antiquities, instead I think of him as a gatekeeper to keep us in the dark. Oh, yeah. Well, you think that because it's true. Um, I've come to think of him as Dr. No. Whereas someone like doc, <laughs> with Dr. Sam Osmanikic yeah. at the Bosnian pyramids, he's Dr. Yes. Anyone who wants to measure anything, of course, is going to be respectful and go measure it and let's publish it. Let's put the story together through geology, negative ions, orbs, you, you name it, he's measured it, right? And so Zahi never went to that site. He cemented over what was called the Isis temple um, on the Giza Plateau beside the Sphinx. Um, he has insisted all along that there's nothing to the Bosnian pyramids, as did Robert Schock. There's nothing to this site of Hawara, not even enough to have him go look. But I've been speaking to the new Zahi, 
Um, and there is a new Zahi who I've met. Um, and he did his PhD research on the mud brick pyramid that is there on the site. And he was part of the excavation that found the Ptolemaic layer. And there's statues and things that you've seen in a style that's similar in Egypt. But that was at the five, eight, 12 meter level, right? Not all the way down. And so now it seems like that pyramid was an afterthought. And it sounds like people kept returning to that site because it had, you know, a history and uh, an energy probably too. So um, anyway, so Zahi just slammed the whole thing when he found out. It's, it's interesting because it was my supervisor when I was doing my um, PhD research in archaeology. Um, from the, he was then the associate dean of the Faculty of Archaeology of Cairo University and became dean. And I guess he was arch rivals. Zahi saw him as an arch rival because they were both in competition to become the minister of, edu- of culture, which is very prestigious. And so Zahi found out that there was a team there doing the ground penetrating radar on site, laying the wires on, as I mentioned before. And he sent someone to go pick everybody up by the scruff of the neck. And they put the, the, the then dean in jail, kicked the, the, the principal investigator out of the country saying, if you come back, you get the death penalty. And no, there's nothing there. He had more influence than most people believe. Oh, yeah, I know. I know him well. Why is that? Well. Who's behind all of this secrecy? Something tells me that there's a, not only in Egypt, but there's a global effort to keep all this away from our, from our minds. Well, I know, and I'm right in the thick of it now, aren't I? Yes, you are. And I've, I've suffered because of, of what I know. And, and yes, there's definitely some funny business going on here. Um, and denial, denial, denial. Um, another river. Another, oh yeah, right. <laughs> Would you rather be in denial or on denial? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so um, it is a conundrum. It is, um, it's, it's, it's a, an extraordinary situation. Um, there's already been all kinds of politics and sideways this and that. Uh, Zahi now has another job. Uh, apparently, that the new Zahi told me that he's been hired to do the restoration of the Suez Canal. And that's an interesting little tidbit, because there is a canal at the site, and it was put there by a man named Louis de Belfont. And I don't know how good your French is, but that means beautiful foundation. Un petit peu. Un petit peu. Bon. Louis de Belfont. And he was a water engineer, and uh, was commissioned to create the Suez Canal. And his funders wanted him to use stones right off the Giza Plateau and the Great Pyramid because they used it as a quarry in those days. And they just helped themselves to the casing stones and to whole pyramids that there were more pyramids there than appear now. And um, he was like, uh, not so much. Uh, let's use granite from over there instead. It'll be better because da, 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 da. And so we've come to see him as a bit of a preservationist in that he wasn't going to wreck the pyramid. And so uh, irrigation canals are common um, in the band that goes along either side of the Nile. And just a case in point, this site is 30 kilometers from the Nile. And uh, the Sphinx's nose is eight miles from the, the Nile. And the Nile divides Cairo and Giza. And so, you know, this, this speaks to the extreme antiquity 
because as you've seen in the pyramid code, the, the migration of the Nile uh, takes time, and, and the farther away it is, the older the site would right. be, as we see with Abydos and Dendera and Luxor and Karnak, which are right on the river, practically. And um, anyway, so this, okay, here's here's the, the um, smoking gun, I think they like to call them. Uh, the shape of this canal is exactly parallel to the shape of the passages that go for 800 meters on the red level. Are you saying that we're connected at one point? No, I'm saying whoever put the canal there recently, like when was the Suez Canal built? Oh, not, okay. not that long ago, knew exactly what the shape of the passages were at the lower level. And I noticed that by studying these maps. So for 800 meters, that's almost a kilometer of knowing the shape. But... Flinders Petrie came along. He wrote a book, 10, 10 Years of Digging in Egypt, 1881 to 1891. And he had gone there in 1881 and did the Roman excavation and the Ptolemaic excavation. And he found temple pillars down there, uh, mummified crocodiles. Uh, climbing the pyramid, there's another pyramid within view, which I've come to see is pretty much everywhere there's a pyramid, there's another one you can see, which is fascinating in itself. Um, and okay. So Flinders Petrie excavated, and let me just say that the, the Roman level had wooden sarcophagi with a painting of the person's face that was the deceased. And these are attributed to be the, the, the most realistic, the oldest form of realistic, not stylistic paintings on the planet, apparently seems like a tall a tall thing but it, it it was a style that hadn't been seen before which is necessarily roman which is far later right and ptolemaic is anthony and cleopatra what 72 75 bc something like that and so these these older is deeper so the deeper you go the older it is in archaeology and so anyway so someone knew about that and flinders petrie i mean archaeology didn't start till 1910 and so 1891 is before that and so I take my hat off to him because I think he was quite uh, accurate and precise at saying, you know, I went here this day, there were this many children, this many women, men, we found this, 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 and this. And then the next day he's got the list of how it happened. And I've been privy to see the field notes of everything that happened on the Giza Plateau over time in the rare books library of the Faculty of Archaeology of Cairo University under the supervision of, this, of the dean who came full circle and ended up being part of this story, which is quite amazing for me that, you know, it's like, how do I know this cast of characters? You know, it's like, I, you know, I feel, I feel deeply involved in the story. Let's just put it that way. Um, yeah. So, um, what we're thinking now is that Petri said, oh, you can't excavate there because it's full of water. And then the canal, they assumed it was leaking. And if you go to the pyramid now and throw a rock in, it goes plunk because it's water. So all of the past researchers were saying, oh, no, we can't dig. We have to move the canal. So in 2008, before all this thing went sideways, um, there was a benefactor who had pledged $2.5 million to move the canal. And Klaus and his friend made a specific scan for just water. And I call them puddles. And it's not all seeping and watery down there. Uh, apparently the water is underneath the complex. And not that much of it. 
So there's loads of parts of the complex that are completely, well, it's all dry, but even underneath, there's loads of areas where there's no water underneath, and there is water in the pyramid. So we're thinking that someone would have camouflaged the situation to prevent people from digging, and it worked. They didn't dig. You think the builders did that, or did a, you know, a, a somebody after the dynasties camouflaged oh, de- it? Definitely after the dynasties. Okay, for what and reason? Because, because it's just it's too far out, and I, I mean, we we've been contemplating like, what if we get down in there, and it's really weird, like weird, like those discs that they found in the storyline from Chelsea Floor, and just get back to that. All they had to do was say it was the Great Pyramid. And you, you wouldn't go looking here. When you say this, are you referring to data storage almost? Yep. Can you describe that? Okay. So going from my memory of this manuscript, um, if you make a circle with your thumbs and middle fingers, discs about that big, so bigger than a CD, uh, with... Um, Cutouts. Remember in the olden days with our computers? Maybe you're you're probably not as old as oh, I am. Oh no, no. Of course, how you remember? <laughs> Are you talking okay, about so the punch floppies cards. and yes, punch cards? And the, the computer yes. at the University of Alberta in my first bachelor's degree uh, was as big as a room. That's right. Bit, well, you know, half a house kind of deal. And so you you put you'd cut out and you'd you'd make the punch cards and then you'd feed it into the computer and it would compute whatever. Right. That like that, like that like cogs in a wheel, like uh, data disks. Are you referring, see, uh, I'm trying to remember that uh, those disks that were found somewhere, I forgot where in the world, we have seen this, uh, let's call them spaceships, that have this little dent in the middle, and they found these disks, uh, what's the name, it'll come to me throughout the interview. Well, rock and roll, Mel, because this, this is a wee bit spooky. Now, why someone would hide something, who's going to understand it? My, my involvement in this and my insistence on keeping the, 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 the scan not digitized. Dropa stones. Sorry for interrupting you. Dropa oh, stones. Yes, that's what I was referring to. Thanks. Um, D-R-O-P-A? D-R-O-P-A, and they have a little smudge in the middle. Just look that up. Um, yeah, anyway, so it's... Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. That's it. Absolutely. Am I getting somewhere? Yep. Good. You are. And look at how many there are if you just go Google Images. That's, that's where I am exactly, yes. Okay, you see, and this is exciting because I, I had seen those, but didn't put it together. Well, and what do you got here? A little a little being, um, you know, measuring uh, a little being like in the movie Sirius. And so, yeah, this this is ultimately strange. Now, my involvement, you know, with the pyramid code and getting permissions on the applications to be the one that organizes the filming was to have the footage. So if anybody came along and wanted to hide it, uh, no can do because I've already got the footage. (laughs) So I've always had one foot on the shore. Uh, The Egyptian government has not been forthcoming. I mean, they, they do little cleanup projects or a little temple at, at Karnak, but in all these years that I've been really earnestly involved in Egyptology research, they haven't found much and they haven't uncovered much. Any relation with the Dropa people and maybe even the Crystal Skulls? 
I don't know about that. Um, I don't endorse the crystal skulls the way some people do. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, these patterns and the code things, you know, they, they do look like cogs of a machine. And it's stone, it's stone Age, but with the Bosnian pyramids, we've got Stone Age meets matriarchy meets pyramid power because they're dating at 38,000 years. And with people like Klaus Donna, who is, you know, all about out-of-place artifacts, and now with access to the scanning technology to then go look around, this is really powerful. And I'll be speaking alongside Michael Cremo at the Modern Knowledge Tour the 29th of August in uh, Vancouver and the 30th in Victoria. And he is what Klaus is to artifacts to, you know, skeletons. And he's using a potassium argon dating and pulling things into over a million years old. Now, we still have labs fudging the photoluminescent and thermoluminescent dating techniques because once you get past 30,000 years, carbon-14 is highly unreliable. Uh, I I know at a Sitchin conference that I went to, I was invited to the round table with the scientists, and they did a whole round table a whole day. And one of the topics was dating techniques, and someone said they sent the same sample to 14 dating labs and came back with 14 dates, carbon-14. I'm like, okay, (laughs) it doesn't work. Definitely, if it's 14. And, and, And then Klaus found something that he was pretty sure was old, old. And the truth is, is nothing has been dated to older than 6,000 years in South America. So he sent it to a local lab. They kept it for over a year. He called up and said, uh, where's my date? And they said, well, come and get it. And they said, you know, we're not going to charge you. And it's 5,820 years or whatever, but under 6,000. And he realized the labs are corrupt. You know, I'm just thinking of this technology, if it can be used from, say, an airplane. I'm very impatient, you know, say we found this, right? If we have the technology that we can deploy from an air, use from an airplane, imagine what else we could find, say, in Bolivia, Peru, Mexico, Cambodia, you name it. Well, they've been doing that. And there was a technology that they were using from airplanes. And then in Peru, they ended up with so, so many underground temples that they, because uh, archaeology is a destructive science and highly specific, it slowed them right down and they weren't able to just go and specifically look because there was too much of it. But now, using this technology, they found a pyramid in Indonesia recently, and there's one in Italy, and there's a couple of them underwater um, off the coast of Cuba that are so deep you can't even go in with um, a diving. They have to send a submarine with cameras. And then, of course, some of our researcher friends say, oh, there's nothing to it. And why would it be at the bottom of the ocean? And if we can't prove why it's at the bottom of the ocean, then it doesn't exist. It's like, uh, I don't like that circular thinking. And where else is Atlantis going to be? It's going to be at the bottom of the ocean. Well, that brings me to Yonaguni. And if for some reason, I'm thinking of our mutual friend, uh, Dr. Robert Schock, you know, respected by our listeners at the same time. You know, I know he is against to what Dr. Simiros Managish says about the the Bosnian Pyramid. He says that the Yonaguni Island findings are natural, you know, money, natural occurrences. What's your take on that, by the way? Well, the truth is, is that he made both those decisions in half a day, diving once. And at the time of his dive, Santa Fe and Graham Hancock, his wife, uh, had done 54. That's right. Dives, dives right. Okay. So I was going to take one look. It's natural. And we're going to add to that list that Robert said the Bimini Road was natural. And he's the one, when he looked at the data 
that came from deep, deep, deep underwater said, we got no proof. So your picture is fake. And it, so, I mean, go ahead and say, no, be a naysayer if you want, but there's got to be something to this stuff. And why, I mean, what the data that they've got from the Bosnian pyramids is astonishing. I've seen, I've seen the, the certificate with my own eyes of carbon-14 dating is 38,000 years. And there's another one that's 31,000. And the artifacts that they're finding that they've got in the lab at the Bosnian pyramids replicate, are you ready for this, what Michael Tillinger has in his museum in South Africa. Looking out my eyes with footage of both of these places, you're finding similar artifacts. Well, they're not in the neighborhood of each other by any stretch of the imagination. Right. What does that prove if, if the Bosnia pyramid is really a pyramid? And we have all these others being found in Indonesia, and we know the, the, outward, uh, the, the, the ones in Cambodia. Does that say that there was one civilization in the past that, you know, let's take Egypt as an example. Do you think they were seafarer? It was a seafaring uh, civilization, just like the Chinese. Yep. Have you read Gavin Menzies' work? No, I have not. He was a, a mariner, uh, captain of a submarine, and he would look at land patterns um, along shorelines. And then he went above and started looking for art that would replicate, and he made some discoveries. He was first trying to show that the Chinese had desalinization equipment, and they were you know, making sprouts, and they had fruit, and there was no way they were getting scurvy because they had this high technology. Well, who taught them that? And he figures that they were... Uh, in North America long before Columbus. And uh, then he looked at the Minoan culture, which they say is the palace of King Minos on Crete. Um, and Klaus tells me that the entirety of Crete is honeycombed. And there's a labyrinth there. And we're told that the builder of the labyrinth uh, at Knossos uh, also visited this labyrinth at Huara. And the metaphors that go with the pyramid, brain, and um, labyrinth all being the same metaphor. Um, so all of that fits together. And Gavin Menzies stopped his book and completed it later, and then looked to how the Minoan culture looked like they had ties to Atlantis. And this is very compelling. And this is, this is like uh, Chris Dunn is to Egyptology, that he, he's an engineer. He's not trying to be a psychic or anything else. He just says, these are machine tool marks, right? He's being true to his profession and he's giving evidence along those lines and not speculating too far away from that, which I respect immensely, right? And Chris Dunn will be with us in a few weeks, uh, but Gavi Menzies, I'm looking at his books here, 1421, The Year China Discovered America, and a bunch of other books. I'm surprised I haven't been exposed to his, to his work, so hopefully, you know, still alive, I presume, so hopefully- Yes, he's in, he's in England, but right. he, he's a very compelling writer, I find. Um, and he's telling the story of how he and his wife went here and they were thinking this and then, they, you know, and he's telling it like an adventure story. And then he's got the facts and the pictures and you, you can't argue with it, really. It's, it's quite brilliant. And so that starts leaning toward the idea of the Atlanteans. And, and there's more talk now about a third party hypothesis. So if the Mayans weren't talking to the Sumerians, weren't talking to the Egyptians, perhaps they each had similar ancestors who all talked to them about similar things, but they're not talking to each other, right? Just the way, why would people keep going back to that site? Because somebody's saying, telling somebody else, and it's, it's, it's kind of coming along in the verbal tradition. But, um, the connections of the Minoan culture and Atlantis are there. And so, you know, okay, 
back to the evacuation committees. If straight-sided pyramids on telluric ley lines with a zigzag pattern, underground passageways and water and other characteristic features, quartz crystal under pressure, etc., is what would hold the grid of the earth, would have an effect on the grid of the earth in a pre-Diluvian situation before the flood, um, then um, it's, it's entirely possible that part of the evacuation committees were about colonizing and going to all these places. And absolutely, Atlantis had to be a seafaring culture. And all of these silly, silly um, uh, movies, documentaries about Atlantis saying, oh, well, we didn't find elephants. So that's not that they couldn't have been there. And it was here. No, no, they didn't have this. And it's just all silly thinking. But and everybody wants to know, well, was it the Pillars of Hercules or was it near the Azores Islands or was it the high antiplano in South America or here or here or here, here at uh, Antarctica? All of the above. And why do um, Egyptian boats that were supposed to be to go to the stars have watermarks on them? A. And B, all mummy tissue that's ever been examined has, we call it cocaine loosely, but it's cocoa for that came from South America. Right. And... The Plato's description of, you know, the Poseidon and the cities were all round with two levels of water in a circle. And so the ships, because it's seafaring, would come in and go around one side, drop their cargo, pick up the next cargo, and it go out, go out the other way and keep going in a continuous line. And sorry for the metaphor, but like like the, the, the washrooms in, in airports, where you go in and turn, you know, go to the right, and when you come out, you go the other way. Because you got your little wheelie bag and you don't want to be crashing into people while you don't want to turn your boat around either. <laughs> so all the cities were created this way. And so that's what you find evidence of. And there's, you know, documentaries that show uh, outside of the Pillars of Hercules. And so, but, but what everyone's trying to do is either or, which is really a patriarchal way of being and thinking. Disconnect, disconnect. Well, how about connect, connect, connect? How come we don't see more of a footprint if the Chinese, if the Egyptians, and we're going to talk about uh, the the Grand Canyon. You probably heard of the story of G.E. Kincaid from 1909, uh, very, very explosive story that still has legs these days. But how come we don't see a bigger, a larger footprint here? Is it because people were just, you know, commerce was an, a, a normal thing as opposed to just conquering, which is what happened in 1492? Well, in all kindness... People are saying, well, if they had uh, diamond drill bits, where's the bit? Well, three <laughs> three world disasters later, I mean, you know, 10 minutes in your house if you drop the diamond <laughs> or in the lawn, you're not going to find it either. And so um, we've been looking in the wrong way and in the wrong place. Now, what's showing up, and the Bosnian Pyramid is probably the most developed example of this, is it's covered in in, in soil. And then the trees grew. And so when you look at it from a distance, the trees are all different heights. Well, they're different heights, but that doesn't mean that underneath isn't straight-sided, which they've excavated enough to show that unequivocally. And so this means pre-Diluvian. So the Chinese have pyramids that have got trees growing on them. And they found one in Serbia. And it just, it just, it's coming up, coming up, coming up. There's more and more of these. Now in Egypt, because it used to be tropical and now it's dry, the sand blew away. But, um, Perhaps all of these pyramids were, were before the flood. And, uh, and now that we're catching on, uh, there's more and more and more showing up all the time. 
and hidden in plain sight. How fascinating. But the when the water receded from the flood, it left silt on the pyramid, and here come the trees. But if they have excavated enough soil in the Bosnian pyramid to conclude that unequivocally that it's not natural, why is this information not more prevalent? <laughs> for, pardon me for laughing out loud. Um, because it, it does seem to be a little bit of a thing that they don't want us to know. And the media is bought and paid for by the people who are poisoning us. And to realize that we could be empowered instead of having power over and disconnected, we could be connected instead of disconnected, they said to the news media, no Don't stories about the Bosnian pyramids. Dr. Yeah. Sam, you've got carte blanche. We trust you. Have a nice life. The firewall. Never will the train meet. And, and so course, even when people Google, you know, like I've had kids Google and they go and read, nope, there's nothing to it. Well, then you Googled and you went to the wrong place because there's plenty to it plenty by, by the way I'm, I'm playing dumb when i say to you why is this for information not more prevalent i get it who owns the media it's obvious that they want us they want to keep us what is it before ten thousand years we don't know really much that that much if you look at our history books they have nothing beyond ten thousand years where's the the information gap why Well, it's a good trick. They don't, okay, it's like the priests, you know, the Amun priesthood, you know, would make people go to the Nilometer and make people pay half their grain to ensure their salvation to go to the other side. When everybody that came before that with true spirituality understood that you, 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 you're the one, you're the one who's empowered. You're the one who's touching the, the cosmic energy. They practice that. And then the Amun priesthood, and we still say amen, are making you pay for them to give you your salvation. Well, that sounds like the Catholic Church. That's exactly right. Buying salvation. We don't want you to be empowered. We want you to have power over. But if you, you know, know my work, patriarchy, matriarchy. People think matriarchy is women controlling men. No, matriarchy is a completely different system that's all about balance. It's all about leaving more for the next generations, respecting the elders, balance with the planet. And patriarchy is me, mine, greed. If you can't see it, it's not there. If you don't get caught, it's not wrong. Everything for me, disempower all the people, make them all sick, get money off them being sick. It's completely out of balance. Lop off the sacred feminine and everything she represents. And then you have the mess we're in now. I always say that uh, this is a toll booth on my path to enlightenment. And patriarchy treats the planet as, as, as if, and its people, as if they had another planet to go to. Do they have another planet to go to that we're not aware of? And that's why they treat this place like a dumpster. You know what? Even if we did and we could go next door, what's the point in treating a house like a dumpster because you can go next door? It's unconscionable, it's unconscious, it's unnecessary, it's disconnected. And we need to be connected to each other, to humanity, to the earth, to ourselves. That's an option too. And truth, we've completely lost our moral compass. Truth is completely an option. If you get with networks, they want to make the story wrong and have to illustrate it with cartoons. And I want everything to be grounded in something in reality. Oh, well, we can't have that. It's it's interesting that you talk about disconnected and, and being grounded because literally every room I go to, even right now in my sound cabin here, I have grounding equipment around me that it's pressed to my body 
because I've noticed the difference ever since I started literally grounding about a month ago. The health benefits, and I don't mean to digress from your research, but ever since 1960 when DuPont came along and, and brought us wonderful plastics and rubber soles, we have been disconnected from the planet. And I wonder if more people were to ground themselves because grounding calms your nervous system and it it, 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 it makes your left brain more towards the right brain, which is what we need if this planet will, would be operating differently. What's your take on grounding, by the way? Well, okay, so there's such a thing called nature deficit disorder that's children <laughs> who are on their rubber soles yeah. going into a, you know, into a parkade and then up an elevator into a building and playing video games and then getting on the school bus and going to school and being outside for 15 minutes, morning 15 minutes in the afternoon, and the rest of the time their feet are touching cement. And instead of taking their shoes off and going standing them in the, on the lawn... They're giving them antidepressants. That's right. Okay, we've lost our way. That's wrong. Now, the other thing is that Tesla had invented wireless technology, and that's well described in the pyramid code. And J.P. Morgan came along and said, oh, no, 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 interest, utilities, uh, be taxes, you know, we've got to get all that money from the people, insurance. Yeah, yeah, let's just take all their money and charge more and more and more and more. Uh, and no, free. We don't want them to have it for free. It could have been free. However... We also had wireless technology in, in Atlantis, but it wasn't dangerous. It was, it was not in the same frequency zone as a human body, but these guys did it on purpose. So all of the, I call it Wi-Fi, and I am completely hardwired. <laughs> I love that. I have no Bluetooth or anything. I'm, you know, I can put myself on, on Wi-Fi if my guests need it, but then turn it off. No, no wireless doorbell, no cordless phone, because I actually was in the hospital with radiation poisoning after really? I... Yes, after I took um, um, uh, 48 flights in 2012 and, uh, and, and then had living in this, you know, radiation soup. And the reason is, is that it's, 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 it's on the same vibration hertz as the human body. How dare they? They could have easily picked another field. And so I was lined up in 1996. I was the only person I knew that had wireless. And, uh, and I've been all over it. So I've been exposed to it more than most people who got it in the recent years. And, um, and enough's enough. And I feel a lot better. And, and when my tenants, um, you know, turn the, they, they turn, I've got them trained to turn it off at night. Um, when they turn it on in the morning, I wake up period. It was giving me blurry vision, cramping in my legs, headaches beyond insomnia, terrible stuff. It took a year and a half before I recovered. And now I'm really careful. But it's it's terrible, and so they're they're messing with us on so many different levels, as if they know, and they want everybody unplugged, dumbed down, schooled to the point where the creative thinking is gone, and it worked, not with everybody, not with you, not with me. Fortunately, and we have to take a one and only intermission, but we're getting into areas that I like. See, before the break, I before the we started the interview, I humorously told you. Whenever you and I talk, it's almost like a box of chocolate. I never know what we're just going to go to, but you know, I think of the golden mean, fractals, Fibonacci sequence, A432 hertz tuning frequency, which I have been told is prevalent all over Egypt. I recently did an interview with uh, a man with the name of Ananda Bosman. Incredible interview, folks. You have to listen to it. It's on Sanitas Radio, our sister radio program. And he connects all of this to Egypt as well. It seems we can't get enough of Egypt. And, and that's why we're doing a lot of interviews these days. We're having Dr. Cameron Bolter today. We have 
John Anthony West, Stephen Mailer, Brian Forster, Christopher Dunn. This is an area of the world that we seem to be going to all the time. And when we come back, we have so much more. Carmen, how can people buy your products, learn more about your work? There's a link to get the Pyramid Code on uh, pyramidcode.com, and it's a Vimeo uh, video on demand. And actually in Vimeo, you also can order uh, The New Atlantis, uh, which is a series that's been in production for a while. And I'm doing an Indiegogo campaign right now to help ask people for help to finish it, because if the networks get involved, it'll turn into untruth. So I'm inviting people to help me with that. Absolutely. And I don't mean to be criticizing the History Channel or Discovery Channel, but all you have to do, folks, is find out behind the scenes who owns them and tell me if they really, really want the truth out. I don't think so. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. I'm here with Tucker Carmen Bolter discussing all of this and much more. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, Go to VeritasRadio.com, click on Members, or subscribe. Or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, detoxified iodine, supplements, a USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy. Enjoy. 